I've titled today's message, Lessons from Lazarus. And again, it's John chapter 11. One of the things that I get asked about most often, about my secular work, about being a paramedic, is how I can handle being around all that tragedy and all that death and all that suffering and things, and how I handle it, and I don't, it doesn't really bring me down or anything. And, and uh, I always point to Jesus when we talk about that. It's even worse now that I tell people I'm a deputy coroner. I tell them actually that being a coroner is a lot easier than being a paramedic. I mean, after all, no one ever complains. They never try to hit me, never try to spit at me, never don't scream and cuss. They lie absolutely still and you have to do a procedure on them. And if you can get past the death thing, being a coroner is a lot easier, actually. And I say that with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, because I see that job as just an extension of ministry. I get to go into homes that would never have me in there before. And I get to go in and be part of their grieving process and even talk about Jesus a little bit. Death is one of those great equalizers in life. It's probably the greatest equalizer in life. It affects everyone. It affects the rich. It affects the poor. It affects the famous. It affects the unknown. Most people fear death. Even most Christians, if you get down to where they really live, they also fear death. And people fear death because they believe that death is the end. There's a man named Bertrand Russell. He's a 20th century philosopher. He was an atheist. As he approached his death in 1970, he wrote, The life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, toward a goal that a few can hope to reach and where none can tarry long. One by one as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. That's a pretty bleak way of looking at life, isn't it? But that's how an atheist views death. But the Bible tells us that we do not grieve as the world does who has no hope. We have some incredible promises in God's word that we can cling to when our time is up or, that, or when we lose our loved ones. And this morning we're going to go through several lessons that we can learn through the death and the resurrection of this man named Lazarus. And it's my belief that as we understand the truth of God's word about exactly what death is for the believer, that we can walk away with a new view of God, with a new hope in God and his word and see him working in our lives. This morning we're going to begin by looking at what our Creator has to say about death. One of my favorite sayings you have ever heard me say over and over again is that truth is reality as seen through the eyes of God. You can't get any closer to the truth than the way that God sees things, because he can only see things the way they are. So God's view of death is what is real, and therefore it should be our view. So let's look at Jesus' view of death. In verse 4 of John chapter 11, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And before we get any further this morning into this lesson, we need to establish one vital and one very critical point. No human being that has ever been born when they die, has just blinked out of existence. You and I, from the moment we were conceived, became eternal beings. 
We will all live forever. Death is simply going through one of two doors. The door on the left goes to everlasting destruction, the thing that Jesus calls hell. The door to the right goes to everlasting reward, the place that the Bible calls heaven. When a person ceases life on this earth, they will, figuratively speaking, be confronted by these two doors. One door is locked and one door is wide open. And the best part about these doors, the thing that most humanity doesn't understand, you hold the key. The decision is completely yours as to which door you walk through and which door remains locked. The difference on which door is open depends on your relationship or that person's relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's look at some of the different ways that the Bible describes the word death in relation to the person. Throughout the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, the Bible has different languages and phrases and different ways of describing death. And the first way that we see the end of life described is simply in the word death. And a lot of time within the Bible, when the word death is being used, they're talking about the unbeliever. One of the arguments that an unbelieving world wants to use against us and against the Bible is that Jesus was this great moral teacher who talks about joy and life and second chances, but what they fail to realize is that Jesus was our chief theologian, the chief person within the entire Bible who described this death of the unbeliever and the consequence of that death, which is hell. Jesus spoke a lot about hell within the four Gospels. It was actually one of his most popular subjects to speak about because it fit in with his mission on this earth to seek and save the lost. If there was no hell, there's really no reason for Jesus to come in the first place because there's nothing that we need to be saved from. One of the principal scriptures that talks about the fate of the unbeliever is found in Luke 16. Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus that we just saw. It was another person named Lazarus. Believe it or not, during that time, Lazarus was a fairly common name. So he tells this parable about this rich man and Lazarus. And he talks about Lazarus being a poor and yet faithful man in the eyes of God who goes into his eternal reward in heaven. And the rich man who was unfaithful goes to his eternal reward which was in hell, because he was unfaithful. And there are several things that we learn about hell here. Number one, hell is fixed. Jesus described hell as being separated from heaven by this huge gulf that no one could cross. It is fixed by God's degree, decree, and it's impassable. There are no second chances to get out of hell. Number two, it is eternal. The people who go there, they have no hope. The people in hell will spend forever regretting the choices that they're making right now in life that are in rebellion against God. Number three, God has given all humanity sufficient evidence to point us to him. Any thinking person who looks at the order of creation and, and the beauty of creation and just how well everything works um, when it comes to life and, and everything like that, you have to talk yourself out of the logical conclusion that there is a creator. 
You have to make up stories like evolution or, or make up stories like aliens seeded the planet and, and all these kind of fantasy things. You have to make that up instead of just saying that God said, let there be light. God said, let the firmament be um, formed. God said all these things that we read about in the book of Genesis, that he was the creator. And Paul explains why people do this, why they have to go after all these other myths in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, which says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from that which is made so that people are without excuse. And you'll hear one of the biggest objections about God and the biggest objections about God creating hell will be calling into question his sense of justice, of saying, well, well, what about that, that cannibal in the Congo who never gets to hear about God or who never gets to hear the word of Jesus? God would be, would be wicked by sending that person to hell. And my answer to that is always, let God worry about the cannibal in the Congo. He has made a way for that person to, to understand Jesus. There are Muslims right now coming to Jesus who have never had Jesus spoken to them, but God is giving them visions. God is giving them dreams. And they are coming to faith in Jesus Christ through supernatural means. Let God worry about the cannibal in the Congo. Let's talk about you and your excuse from coming to him. That's always my answer. You're neither a cannibal nor you're in the Congo. You live in America where the truth of Christianity is only an internet search away. We are saturated with with the ability to find out any information we want about dozens of subjects and Christianity just being one of them. Plus, we have Christian radio, TV stations. Americans are without excuse when it comes to trying to feign ignorance about Jesus Christ. Today, if you choose to go to hell by ignoring the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you, Proverbs describes you. The Bible describes, Proverbs in the Bible, they describe you like a foolish person starving in the midst of an all-you-can-eat buffet. You are just simply refusing to reach up and take the food that you are surrounded with. So whether you're here today or listening by podcast, I would implore you today, turn to Jesus. Today is your day of salvation. You just need to let him into your heart. You need to become his disciple. You need to let him take charge of your life forever. Surrender to Jesus. Let him put you on that new path that will lead into his arms in heaven. Because the alternative, if you ever really study hell, it's too frightening to even contemplate. Somebody would say, well, Pastor John, it sounds like you're trying to scare us. I say, Amen. Jesus was scared of hell. That's why he talked about it all the time. That's why he held naked on an old Roman cross so that we can be saved from that. So I would implore you today, if you have never made that decision or you have backslidden to a point where you're starting to question if you're even saved anymore, turn your life around and give it over to Jesus. You will not regret it. 
The second way the New Testament and Jesus describes death is sleeping. That is the death of a believer. In verse 11 it said, After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. The fact that we experience this thing called death is a result of the sin that humanity has done in the past. And the effects of sin on our earthly bodies over the course of human history, because of this, our, our bodies eventually break down. And disease causes us to fall into states of sickness that eventually leads to this condition called death. However, the thing that we have to realize is we are not just physical beings. Your first nature, and all humanity's first nature, is that of being a spiritual being. This physical body that we spend so much time dwelling in and thinking about is only a vessel that allows us to experience and interact with the things of this earth. I want you to think of your body like this. If we were to go down to Cape Canaveral, I think that's what they're calling it now, or is it Cape Kennedy? Or if we were to go down to Florida, and they were to launch us into space and say, you're going to take a trip to the moon. When you get to the moon and you land, you say, I want to go hop around on the moon like Neil Armstrong and, and jump and, and ride in the Mars rover. You can't just step outside the airlock and step onto the surface of the moon. What do you have to do? You've got to put on a spacesuit because your body was not made to live in a vacuum. You have to put on a spacesuit to protect you, to enable you to interact with the environment that is on the moon. Your body is exactly the same thing. Your body essentially is a spacesuit for your spirit to be able to interact with the things of this earth. But you are primarily a spiritual being, not just a spacesuit. Your spirit is in, within this physical body to act within this physical environment that God has put us into. What Jesus was referring to, to sleeping here, when we go to sleep or die, is referring to our body. But the good news is, is that there's coming a day when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. I look so forward to being clothed in the incorruptible instead of the corruptible like we are now. I look forward to being able to be a superman, essentially like Jesus was. Jesus could walk through walls. Imagine this. I, I had a co-worker this week or on Friday, she came into the ER and she's like, does anybody have a coat hanger? I locked my keys in my car. And so we're all out there and we're trying to get, we're using like blood pressure cuffs to skinny into the door. We puff up the blood pressure cuff to, to spread the door enough to get the hanger and to, to jimmy the lock and do all this kind of thing. And I was, I was thinking about my, my message during this and I'm thinking, man, when I'm in my incorruptible body, I could just go blink inside of her car, get her keys for her and blink back outside of her car. Jesus walked through walls. And we're supposed to have the same body as her, as he did. And then I was thinking, well, when we're in that kingdom on earth, we won't have keys at all. Because there won't be any thievery. There's no reason for a key. And then I was thinking, well, there's no really reason for cars if I can just go blink, blink, blink. Imagine getting out of traffic. Amen. That's heaven right there. I can't get wait to get into that body. And that's the hope that all of us who believe in Christ should have. 
Our physical death is just simply walking through a door. It's as much a part of life as laying your head on the pillow at night and going to sleep. Because no matter what, you're either going to wake up here on this earth, or if you believe in Christ, you get to wake up in His arms in eternal joy and glory. And that brings us to the second lesson about Lazarus that I want to bring to you today. Is that Jesus shares your grief. In verse 35 of John chapter 11, we move a little further into the story now. And Jesus is at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, comforting his sisters Mary and Martha. Now to set this scene, we have to remember the culture that Jesus lives in. Whenever somebody dies in our culture here, it's, it, it's, you know, we, we treat it like a Western European way of dealing with death. We usually deal with death around here, being good German Norwegians, with a stiff upper lip. You don't get to cry. You, don't get to, you have to act strong through the whole grieving process. I remember my dad told me when my favorite uncle died, I was eight years old, he said, you get ten minutes to cry. And then after that, and at the funeral, I was to behave myself and act like a man. You don't get to cry. In biblical times, it was the exact opposite of that. You knew when somebody was grieving. Women would weep and wail. They'd wear black for months. Um, men would rip their clothes and they would go and find a dust heap somewhere to sit in. And they would throw dust up in the air and let dust land on themselves and, and weep and wail. If you were for, from a, a wealthy family... They'd even hire professional mourners to come and do that with you to show how much grief you were in because of your dead loved ones. And that's why Jesus' reaction to this was so significant. John chapter 11, verse 35 is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. But the shortest verse in the whole Bible is also one of the most profound in the whole Bible. Because it's only two words. Jesus wept. I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God. He had traveled for days to reach Bethany to get to where Lazarus was buried. Jesus came there with the express purpose and foreknowledge that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he pauses now to comfort those who are around that graveside. And this pause speaks more to us about the heart of God than volumes of books written by men and authors could ever express. The Almighty, the All-Powerful, the All-Knowing God, who still was in His plan to raise Lazarus in just a few moments, stopped and shared in the emotion of these people that He loved so much. And this lesson is for me as much as it is for anyone listening to this message today. When you are in pain, God weeps with you. God feels that pain with you. When your heart is filled with this, with this, this just crushing pain, He feels it. When you feel there is no hope, He is there. When you feel like you'll never see the light again, Jesus is there carrying you through the darkness. And when you look around and all you see is a darkness of an open grave that you seem to be falling into, Jesus will always be there to catch you when you fall. 
One of the greatest promises in all of Scripture is found in Romans 8.38 that says, For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's the Savior I'm calling you to today. Whether you're here in the church building right now or listening to us by podcast, these promises are for anyone who chooses to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. The third lesson that we learn from Lazarus is this. Resurrection has a name, and that name is Jesus. Resurrection, the term means to bring something back from the dead and bring it back to life. And the term resurrection is one of those big, fancy theological terms we can throw around but never really understand. You don't have to be an expert in theology. You don't have to understand the words exegesis or hermeneutics to understand and know that you can summarize the entire concept of resurrection into a single name, Jesus. It's a truth that only people who know Jesus can truly appreciate. And what it means for you and I is this. Everyone born after Adam and Eve inherited a sin nature. When Adam and Eve sinned, it just damaged them on a a genetic level, so to speak. And they carried that with them into their offspring. And because of that sinful nature, we all have the desire and the propensity and the want to sin. This idea of sin is simply to do something that is outside the character or nature of God. Strictly speaking, the biblical definition of sin means literally to miss the mark. We were talking about hunting earlier and getting ready to go bow hunting. It's actually an archery term. It means to, actually, to miss your mark. If I, if I take my, I'm going to be trying to get out and sight in my bow this week, and if I pull back and I totally miss the target, the correct archery term would be somebody to yell, Sin! If I totally miss the target. That is what it means when our actions don't line up with the character and the nature of God, is that we are totally missing the mark that he has set for us, and the mark he has set for us is himself. What that means for you and I in how we live our lives is whether or not our thoughts and our actions are mirroring those of our Father God. Because God is completely righteous and completely just, he has to punish sin. He has no choice. For him not to punish sin would mean he is not a holy God. He is not a righteous God. He is not a just God. He can't just pat you on the head and say, it's okay, try again. He has to punish it. That's where Jesus comes in. Jesus took all that punishment that we deserve upon himself and then died on the cross in our place. He became our substitutionary sacrifice for sin. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Three days after he went into the grave, he rose again. That's why resurrection is not just a condition. It's not just a theological truth. It's not just a fancy biblical word. Resurrection is a person. And that person's name is Jesus. But another lesson that we learn from Lazarus is not just that he raises us from the dead. Resurrection isn't just about coming back to life and leaving us the same. 
Jesus teaches us the fourth lesson from Lazarus, that spiritual resurrection is the new starting point. After Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, his next instruction was, remove the grave clothes. And that, what that means for us is that Jesus doesn't just save us who come into repentance and faith from death. He gives us a new life. He gives us a new focus. He gives us a new heart to live with. And that's one of the most glorious truths of the gospel that we have. Jesus saves us into a new life with him. That's why we need to believe and understand what resurrection means for each one of us. It means that every addiction that you have right now, Jesus is the answer. It means every problem you have right now, Jesus is the answer. Every struggle that you have right now, Jesus is the answer. Every desire that you have right now, Jesus is the answer. And if you get nothing else out of today's message, put that and bury it deep within your hearts because Jesus is your answer. Amen? Amen? Let's all rise. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this, this story in John chapter 11 of Lazarus coming back to life, of being called out of the grave, into a new life. And Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just search us and know us right now. It's not just enough to come to church. It's not just enough to, to assent to a, a, a series of truths. Resurrection means that we come in to a new life. That's what it means to be born again. So I would ask, Father, that if anyone here is struggling with those those tentacles of the old life trying to get back into them right now, I would ask, Lord, that you just destroy those in Jesus' names. That if there's anything from this world that is trying to, to draw us back into it, that your light would destroy it in our hearts. And Father, I ask that every single person here or listening by podcast will come into a new and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ today. That we would not be fearing this thing called death. But we would, not that we want to look forward to it, but we would be looking forward to the day where we get to see you face to face. We look forward to the day where we get to dance on the streets that are gold. We get to experience you in all of your fullness. Help us to be a people that are able to and bold enough to be able to explain that that is the hope that we have. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you again reign and rule in the hearts of your people. We thank you, Lord. And we bless your name today.